I've just been informed that I have 10 minutes. Eight. Shave off two. We're getting a pretty good ring up here, Kayla. Seven minutes. Let's close in prayer. Shall we? The uh, morning's joke has been wrapped around the Gonzaga playoff game. That's why I get these, uh, these constant posts of how much time I have left. Fortunately for me, I don't know about y'all, but fortunately for me, I got the DVR set. And I want no updates. I want nobody fist pumping in the, in the pews today as uh, Gonzaga starts to roll over Creighton. And uh, so keep it to yourselves. Keep the celebration to yourselves. If you're checking the game, I, I'm not going to fault you. That's between you and the Lord if you're checking the game during the Sunday service. And the reason I won't fault you is because um, I've been guilty of it myself. So I, I know what that's like. Now, I haven't, maybe I should qualify that statement a little bit. I have not been guilty of checking scores while I'm preaching. That part is true. But uh, yet, I get a, a solid yet. Anyway, welcome uh, to those of you that are new and uh, maybe visiting for the first time, the first couple times, and uh, we welcome you here to Addy. And, and uh, we've been looking at this idea of the snapshots of Jesus' life uh, leading up to this next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, of which we're super excited uh, to celebrate. Uh, I won't be the first to say, but I will definitely be another one to say that... Uh, Resurrection Sunday is uniquely a Christian holiday. Uniquely a Christian holiday. I know that uh, you know you can go back into the history and and all the you know all that goes with uh, the word Easter, of which I uh, try to avoid saying. Um, I I want to focus in on what Jesus did, not what uh, pagans were doing in the ancient days. But the reality is, is that we celebrate what we celebrate, what we will celebrate this next week is uniquely. Uh, Christian holiday, and uh, it's uh, what I would say, it's our holiday, and so um, we're kind of looking at these snapshots, we've picked uh, four of them out of the life of Christ, Um, if you weren't here, you're welcome to jump on our website and uh, listen to the previous messages, a few weeks ago we looked at the greatest verse, John 3.16, some of the kids talked about that today in their presentation, uh, Jesus' conversation, a late-night conversation with Nicodemus about being born again. Uh, we actually looked at the whole chapter, chapter 3 of John. Next, the following week, we looked at the greatest miracle, John chapter 11. Jesus validating that he is the resurrection and the life. And he validated that uh, while he was alive by raising Lazarus from the dead. Uh, John chapter 11, it's a great read, it's a great story. I think it's the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did. Um, short of perhaps his own resurrection, but uh, while he was alive and uh, the fact that uh, he bore both the pain and the agony and the loss of his dear friend Lazarus, uh, yet he was compelled by the Father to step in and call Lazarus out from the grave and out he came. And um, the next week we looked at the, uh, the greatest conviction out of Matthew chapter 26, and where Jesus, in Matthew 26, Jesus is demonstrating a couple of things. He's demonstrating full submission to the Father's will. See that in Matthew 26, verse 39. He's demonstrating full admission in verse 41. Full admission, the fact that the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. Uh, 
that the flesh is weak and the spirit is willing. And then he also demonstrated their purposeful action at the very end of Matthew 26, uh, or the end of that passage in verse 46. Jesus says this, he says, hey, let's just get up and go. Arise, fellas, now's the time for action. And we talked about that, is that we need to be Christ followers that are, have purposeful action in our lives, that we need to be uh, in, convicted to not just uh, sit and hear and dine on the Word of God, but that, that the, those spiritual calories that we take in from being in the Word of God, from being in fellowship, from being spurred by one another, from, from whether it's today or any day of the week, a midweek Bible study, a Sunday night uh, uh, time of study, whatever it is, that we don't just take those spiritual calories in and then just, just let them add to us, that those are meant, those spiritual calories, if I can use them that way, they're meant for you to, to get up and do something, to be purposeful in your action and following Christ and, and turn uh, what God is doing in you to convert that then to serving Him. Uh, through the latter days of Jesus' ministry, Jesus had consistently reminded His followers that He had a mission to accomplish that he was going to Jerusalem. Now, he had gone to Jerusalem several times in the three-year ministry that he had, uh, so that part wasn't necessarily new. But there's a piece in Luke 9.22 where he is really, really overtly blunt with his disciples, where Jesus is really gets to the meat of what's going on. And he just says it straight up. Luke 9.22 says this. He says, saying, Jesus saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So his game plan, it, 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 wasn't, hidden, it wasn't hidden in the back of some book somewhere. Like he didn't have it written on his, you know, a little uh, piece of papyrus, you know, and stuffed away in his pocket. Like somehow he was just going to throw it out there later on. He just straight up told him, hey, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen, and there's purpose in it. Today's snapshot, today's snapshot of Jesus is, is one that is, uh, comes from a real place of agony and pain, uh, a, pay, a place of torture. It's really, today's a snapshot of these great words from the cross that Jesus gives us. And normally on Palm Sunday, you have a lot of, of, of encouragement, a lot of review, a lot of teaching, a lot of great teaching on the triumphal entry and, and all of that. And that's all great and, and glorious. And, and we're going to just like do just a, a quick review uh, of Passion Week here, the Passion Week timeline. Um, but I really felt compelled that we, the Sunday before Resurrection Sunday, that we listen to what Jesus says from the cross. There's seven words that he's going to give us from the cross that we're going to examine. Prior to that, let's do a real quick refresher. Michaela has these ideas up on the, uh, on the overhead. Sunday, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he spends the night in Bethany. There should be scripture verses. Do you have the scripture verses up there with him? Matthew 21, 1, Mark 11, 1, Luke 19, 29, John 12, 12. That's kind of Sunday's events. Monday, Jesus leaves Bethany, curses the fig tree on the way into the city. Now, remember, Bethany's only like two miles, so it's like walking, you know, 
uh, from here to Blue Creek, right? You walk down through this little valley out of Bethany and, uh, and back up. Jerusalem sits on a hill, so he comes from kind of, it was a suburb, but he had to go down through this valley and back up and so on and so forth. And anyway, so he leaves Bethany that morning, curses the fig tree on the way into the city. He weeps over Jerusalem. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Uh, this is the day, Monday is the day that he goes into the temple and uh, gets violent. People don't think of Jesus that way. A lot of people in our world think of Jesus as this soft dude, you know, the soft Middle Eastern that's like, you know, no, no you know, you, you wouldn't ever raise your voice to anybody. You wouldn't ever take this, you know, hard stand. They think of Jesus as loving compassion. He's completely loving and compassionate. In fact, I would say that the events of cleansing the table or the temple, taking out the money changers, is probably one of the most loving things he could do. He's taking a stand for what's right, and he's confronting what's wrong. Remember, we talked about in previous messages that God's God's purpose, God's plan, is to confront sin in our lives. And sometimes that's a violent occurrence. Sometimes that's a troublesome occurrence. While Jesus didn't sin in the process in any way, he confronted this evil sin, this money changing, that they had turned, essentially, turned church into a money-making pyramid scheme. Later in the day, he looks into the temple, then leaves the city and spends the night again in Bethany. A few weeks ago, he talked about, in talking with, uh, about Lazarus and Mary and Martha, that they lived in Bethany. Simon the leper lived in Bethany. That was really his refuge. That was his place that he could come back to. These are the events. This week in particular, that's really expounded. He just keeps going back and forth. He's staying in the suburbs, but he's going into the city. He's going into Jerusalem to do what God wants him to do. The verses that follow Monday are there. Tuesday, Jesus leaves Bethany again, finds the fig tree withered. He teaches on faith. He possesses... Possesses the temple and its precincts, confounds and pronounces woe upon his enemies. That's a pretty, there's some pretty heavy passages there. When Jesus just constantly is coming against the religious leadership, the very people that should have recognized who he was, the very people that should have been the, the proclaimers that the fact that the Messiah is here, they completely missed it. They completely miss it. In fact, they not only missed it, but then they become, in the great storyline of the Gospels, they become really uh, his adversary in a lot of ways. Right? And so he pronounces, in, in these passages here, he pronounces these, he has this whole discourse on these woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. That is a, if God is saying woe to you, let me tell you, that's a bad place to be. That's a bad place to be. And I will submit to you also this morning that there was still opportunity for them. So maybe it's not a terrible place to be, like there's no hope or no opportunity, that there's no redemption or recovery. They just didn't take that opportunity. So he says, woe to you. My question is, when God says woe to you about your sin, does it perk up our ears? Does it make us sit up and listen and pay attention? These are, some heavy, these are some of the heaviest passages in the Bible until I think you get to the book of Revelation. 
Of course, you have the Olivet Discourse on the way back to Bethany. Judas, it's on Tuesday that Judas bargains with the Sanhedrin to betray Jesus. They go back and spend the night in Bethany. Wednesday is kind of what they call the silent day. There's no record in the Gospels, um, but <clears throat> there's no record. But much activity as Jesus prepares for the Last Supper and as Judas and the Sanhedrin prepare for Jesus' arrest. So a, there's not a whole lot recorded about Wednesday. Uh, they remain in Bethany throughout the day, and they stay the night there. Thursday becomes a big day. Thursday, Peter and John sent, are sent to make preparation for the Passover meal. After sunset, uh, they eat the meal with the twelve. Jesus washes his disciples. Judas departs. He departs the Lord's Supper. Going to go do what he's going to do. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. That was kind of last week's sermon. Jesus' agony there in the Garden of Gethsemane where he shows great conviction to simply submit himself to the Father's will. Then comes the betrayal by Judas. Betrayal of all things by a kiss. You think about the times that, 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 that demonstrates the, the intimacy of friendship, the intimacy, if you want to take it between a man and his wife. But that closeness that they had, that Judas would be so brazen to step up and say, this is the one, and greet Jesus with a kiss. Uh, particularly painful. So you have the betrayal by Judas, the arrest by the Sanhedrin. Mixed in there's Peter's one opportunity for battle. It doesn't go so well. Misses the guy's head, takes off his ear. <clears throat> I'm going to venture to say that Peter wasn't real good with a knife. I don't know, just me. Like, tell me, he was not, this is one of my questions for Peter at some day. Uh, Peter was not aiming for the ear. I believe, <laughs> I would guess, I'm going to ask him, uh, like, what, you know, what was the target you were looking at, and how in the world did you miss and only take off an ear? Of course, Jesus heals, heals that uh, soldier, supernaturally glues his ear back on. Jesus is carted off to the high priest as the Sanhedrin is convened, and Peter denies Jesus all on Thursday night. Friday is a big day as well. Friday is the trial of Jesus. You have six trials that happen all in this short period of time. The first trial before Ananias uh, in the late night hours, actually. He's looking for an accusation against Jesus. He's biding his time till the Sanhedrin is gathered at the high priestly villa. The second trial is exactly that, where they bring Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Jesus is condemned. The third trial, immediately at dawn. Meanwhile, Peter is in full denial of Jesus the third time, and Jesus is looking at him. The condemnation is repeated, then Jesus is taken to the Roman, <clears throat> Roman authorities. The fourth trial before Pilate, the fifth trial before Herod, and the sixth trial comes back to Pilate. Jesus is beaten, he's scourged. It's there, the city is whipped into a frenzy. Now remember, Jerusalem was packed full of people because they were all there to celebrate the Passover. 
whether or not it was the same crowd or a mixed bag of crowd, the same people that were, you know, at the beginning of the week were yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, and pronouncing his entrance in the triumphal entry, whether those were the same people or a mixed bag, we, we don't exactly know. But no doubt the public sentiment had done a complete 180 and it completely flipped. And now the crowd is whipped into a frenzy as only crowds can get. The crowd is, is, is cranked up, is cranked up against this guy on these false charges. And they're the ones that are saying, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus is finally turned over to be crucified. He's mocked by the Roman soldiers. They place a crown of thorns on him. They beat him. They've whipped him. They've put before him the, uh, through it all, the punishment to drag his own cross through town up onto this hillside. At the same time, you have Judas in such despair that he hangs himself. And you have Jesus bearing that cross and is crucified around 9 a.m. In the midst of all this pain and agony that Jesus would endure, and as we take a look at the snapshot from the cross, I actually want to focus us back from a verse that um, is often overshadowed by the verse that's right in front of it. It's a verse that I think that becomes a, it's a key verse that's in your bulletin, and I think it becomes really the, uh, the foundation in a way uh, for our understanding, what in the world is going on at the end of all these Gospels? Like, why is this guy being treated this way? That verse is John three seventeen, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through the world, through him, might be saved. But that the world through him might be saved. That's why Jesus endured what he endured. That's, this is what motivated him to do and to walk in obedience, do the things that the Father had laid out for him, the hard road, the difficult road of suffering, the difficult road of torture, the dis- difficult road of being maligned, being falsely accused, the difficult road of, of, uh, th- that, that we have all at some probably some level, maybe not all, I doubt any of us really have endured torture, but I think there's times where we can all say maybe that uh, our reputation was on the line and it didn't go so good. I think there's all times that uh, we feel like what the words that we've said have been spun and used against us. I think we can all relate to certain aspects on the lighter side, perhaps, of everything that Jesus endured. God sent his son into the world not to condemn it, but that, through, that the world through him might be saved. These words are the basis for all that we know about Jesus, especially his work and words from the cross. Let's look into those in our remaining few moments. And I'll move quickly. First one we're going to look at is in Luke 23. Verses 32 through 34, it's a word of forgiveness. Or even on the cross, even to those who nailed him 
to the cross, Jesus offers forgiveness to those. He offers forgiveness for those that would turn to him. Luke 23, 32 says, There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one of them on the right hand and the other on the left. Verse 34 says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. They divided his garments and cast lots. And here he is seeking the Father's forgiveness on their behalf. The very ones that would execute this judgment. Jesus speaks a word of forgiveness on their behalf. That's huge. That's big. That, that, that's a power and, and, and an ability that no man has uh, in this way. Right? But it's also an example that we're called to follow. To extend forgiveness even to those. These guys weren't asking for forgiveness. The Roman guards, they didn't care. They didn't believe what he believed. But his ability to forgive plays out really big. And it plays out in our lives as he then supernaturally gives us that power to forgive the people that have done us these horrible wrongs. And I know that's something that many of us can really relate with. And I know it's a process sometimes that we go through time and time and time again, and I would only encourage us as before we move on, that re-examine this particular scripture. That Jesus is extending forgiveness, even to those that don't ask for it. Even to those that don't ask for it. It's a word of forgiveness from the cross. The second word is a word of salvation. The salvation is available through Jesus to anyone who would trust in him regardless of how they've lived or what their current situation is. As long as there's a heartbeat, as long as there's breath in the lungs and cognitive ability, salvation is available through faith in Jesus. One of our neighbors passed away this week, Ed Matchmas. Ed was a pillar in this church for 30-some years at least. Um, and Ed's, I, I believe this wholeheartedly, his biggest joy, his task in life, his, I'll start with this, his task in life was to be a farmer. And he was a great source of information for me as a younger farmer, as a neighbor. Uh, he was a guy that you could go and kind of pick his brain a little bit and, and, and ask him questions. He was a man of few words, if you knew Ed, um, but he was, a, he was a treasure trove of knowledge. He was a treasure trove of, of, of information when it comes to agriculture. Um, I think often, uh, I'm the kind of guy that will go out and fire tractors up just to hear the diesel engines run, because I like it. And burn a little diesel in the process could think, ah, you know, here's a few gallons. That, that guy never fired an engine unless he had a purpose. That was his, he had a regimented style that he did his work. Uh, that was his task in life was to be a farmer. His joy in life was to be a servant. 
His joy in life was to see people grow in their faith. His joy in life was to see uh, uh, church ministry thrive and expand. His joy in life, if you'd really sit and talk with it at all and talk to him about you know, what really brought him uh, a real thrill, was the opportunities he had to go on overseas missions, whether it was in Ukraine um, or wherever he went. That was really his, his joy. If you, could, if you could get Ed to talk a lot about uh, those sorts of things, anything, it would be the fact that he desired to see people saved and grow in their faith. So I think it's fitting to slide that in here when we talk about a word of salvation. That there's a perfect opportunity, as long as there's a heartbeat, breath in the lungs, the ability to uh, understand. Per- perfect opportunity for two criminals here in this story to simply believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And one of them did and one of them didn't. Luke 23, verse 39, just a little further down the page. Verse 39 says, Then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Pretty intriguing that you're hanging there by three nails, and uh, you have the, uh, the gall in your heart to blaspheme another. And to try to, to benefit from somebody else's divinity. That's a pretty, that's pretty uh, brazen statement. That you're going to blaspheme somebody, but then also say, well, I guess if, as long as you're, you know, if you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, save yourself. And save us, yeah. Do it. But the other one answered, verse 40 says, he answered, rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him this word of salvation. He says, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. It's a word of salvation from the cross. The third word is a word of relationship. A word of relationship. Even as Jesus hung on the cruel cross, his thoughts were on the well-being of others. Gives you a glimpse of, of how much uh, he loved the people that were around him. From the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 25, says this, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when, <clears throat> when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. Now, John's writing here, uh, John's really kind of writing here in the third person. He's writing about himself. And he's writing about the love and the responsibility that Jesus has, even for his own mother. This is, in effect, Jesus getting his house in order right before he died. Isn't it interesting that the only worldly responsibility that Jesus had was to provide for the future of his own mother? You ever thought about that way? Like, this was the only, this is the only thing of getting his affairs in order 
at the last moment was to simply provide for his mom. There's another couple things that uh, are interesting. Two thoughts. Uh, This is one of the most overlooked examples of the Lord's provision and protection for his followers. I think it kind of falls under the radar of how Jesus takes care of the people that are his, giving provision and protection. Without this move, Mary likely would have been out on the streets. And the other interesting thought is, is that Jesus left Mary in John's care. John, the beloved disciple, the true believer, rather than the care of his half-brother James. His half-brother James. Now, it's an interesting thought to think about. And we're not told exactly when James came to faith in Jesus. But it's interesting that Jesus would leave his... He takes this provision and protection so serious that he would rather leave his mom in the care of a believer than a non-believer. We don't know exactly when James came to faith in Christ. I, I think I have a great idea when, <laughs> when James came to faith in Christ. I think it was when he saw the resurrected Jesus. Paul gives us that account in 1 Corinthians 15. We're actually going to look at that chapter to this next week. Where Jesus appears to his half-brother James after the resurrection. Uh, I don't have, you know, a screaming high IQ, but if I had a half-brother and he died and was resurrected and he showed himself to me and we had a conversation, that's, a plain, that's the spot for conversion. In my mind, it's like, this guy's no joke. Everything that he said, everything, no wonder he was perfect when we were kids. He never got in trouble, Right? I always give him a hard time saying, you're the favorite, you're the favorite. He had good reason to be the favorite. I think that uh, that's James' point of conversion. If your brother dies and raises from the dead, uh, it's going to change your theology a whole bunch. But it's interesting at this point in the storyline, this word of relationship, this word of care and protection and provision that Jesus has for his own mom, he puts that care on his dear friend, the Apostle John. There could possibly be one more thought to this, and that is is that John was considerably younger than the rest of the disciples. Considerably younger. He was the only one that wasn't martyred. He was the one that lived the longest. And so there's this idea that that perhaps then Jesus is thinking, I don't know, I guess we'll find out one day, that he's going to put her in the care of the one believer that's closest to him that has the greatest uh, opportunity to live the longest. That might be a third thought that you can insert there. The next word from the cross is a word of humanity. And even though Jesus didn't know from eternity, even though Jesus knew from eternity... He would be the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He still felt the pain and the abandonment. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, we read this. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why have you forsaken me? In quoting Psalm 22, Jesus declared his fulfillment of that prophecy in both, in both its agony and its exultation. The psalmist continues to say, you have answered me. This is the part that, that is not often connected. But in Psalm 22, the psalmist continues to say, you have answered me and I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Even in, the, even in the agony and the pain, even in the sense of abandonment, he's praising the Father. Jesus, Jesus knew, had to, known, had to have known the great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional, during his life, yet he had never known physically the separation from his Father. At this moment, he experienced what he had not yet ever experienced, and there was a significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by the Father at this moment. Spurgeon says this, he says, His one moan is concerning his God. It is not, why has Peter forsaken me? Why has Judas betrayed me? These were sharp griefs, but this was the sharpest. This stroke has cut him to the quick. And at this moment, a holy transaction took place. God the Father regarded God the Son as if he were a sinner. As the Apostle Paul would later write, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. First, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. The next word from the cross that we hear from Jesus is this, a word of distress. A word of distress. Jesus, as he was dying in a cruel death, still fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. John 19, 28 says this, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he says this, he says, I thirst. It was the last prophetic thing on the calendar before his death. Psalm 69, 19 through 21, the messianic passage that prophesies the events of Jesus' crucifixion reads this way. Verse 19 of Psalm 69 says, You know my reproach, my shame, and my dishonor. If you think about Jesus hanging on the cross, if you think about the context of that culture and what was going on, these were all true of him at that time. It was a reproach. It was a shame. And it was a dishonor to be crucified. The psalm continues to say, My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I look for someone to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Mark 15, 23 tells us that Jesus didn't accept this pain-numbing drink at the beginning of his ordeal. But now he accepted a taste of greatly diluted wine to wet parched lips and a dry throat so that he could make one final announcement to the world with a clear voice. That one final announcement was a word of triumph. It was all that Jesus came to do was complete. And John 19.30 then tells us, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, 
it is finished. It is finished. That was the one, the one prophecy left while he still had breath was to get a little drink. And that one little drink was just enough for him to say a clear voice. It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus' final word to Telestai in the ancient Greek was a cry not of a loser, but it was the proclamation of a winner. It was the proclamation of the victor. It was the proclamation of the conqueror. And Jesus had finished the eternal purpose of the cross. It stands today as a finished work, the foundation of all Christian peace and faith, paying full in full the debt we righteously owed to God and making peace between God and man. The verb here in the Greek was used in the first and second centuries in a sense of fulfilling or paying a debt. It often appeared in receipts. And Jesus' statement here, it is finished, could be interpreted in this way. And you can receive it today, interpreted this way, that your debt is paid in full. Paid in full. In the business that we run, as farming, we use QuickBooks. And, and so uh, as we you know, have loads of feed that go up to the dairy and whatnot, we're putting in invoices and as... The dairy pays those bills, and every time one of those invoices is uh, paid in full, then the next time it shows up in QuickBooks, it has a nice little green stamp that overlays the whole thing that says, hey, Nathan has paid this bill in full. And you have that stamp, you have that same access, as it were, for your sins, the sins that you could never pay, that I, the sins that I know that I can never pay, to be paid in full only through the finished work of Jesus on the cross and trusting simply that he is who he says he is. It was all finished, paid in full and accomplished. There's a list there, a bullet pointed list that I, I have that of the things that were finished. The types, the promises, and the prophecies were finished. The sacrifices and ceremonies of the priesthood were finished. His perfect obedience was finished. The sacrifice of God's justice was finished. And the power of Satan, sin, and death was finished. It was done. Satan has no more power over the life of a believer, over the life of someone who trusts in Christ, it is finished. I believe that that aspect alone is the, the, the hardest thing to grasp in the life of a growing believer. That their identity is completely different. Their spiritual DNA now is completely different because of what happened on the cross. Not because of how good we can try to be. No, it was Jesus' finished work. And what was finished there, that power of Satan's sin and the death, it was all done. Now all that's left, now all that's left 
the word of reunion. Now that Jesus had completed his task, he would be reunited with the Father. Luke 23, 46, and when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. A word of reunion. A word of coming back together. A word of uh, eternal hope for those that are in Christ. That, that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, and he's done exactly what he said he would do. And he submits himself to the Father at the very last. If somebody wants to invite the kids on up, um, the kids actually are going to come up and sing our closing song for us. If somebody wants to make that uh, quick run. The words of Jesus from the cross are powerful and encouraging. The self-sacrifice, the obedience, the agony, the distress, but the victory, the victory that comes, the victory that comes, no one else has ever been able to conquer Satan, sin, or death. And death has a 100% success rate amongst all of humanity. Nobody has the ability to conquer that except for Jesus. And Jesus would love nothing more than to, to have that message spread as far and wide as possible. That people that would believe in him would grow as deep as possible in their faith and expand their own horizons, expand, expand their, their own ministry, expand their own gifts that he's gifted you with to share this message. This is the hub that Christianity revolves around, the work of the cross. This is central. It's, it's, it's not about building great buildings, great programs. It's not about uh, what church can have the biggest audience or the most money or the most famous pastor. As I've mentioned before, the gospel is spreading fastest in the area of the worlds where we know nothing about any of those things. They know nothing about any of those things. As I asked somebody a while back, you tell me the most famous pastor in India, most famous evangelist in China, most famous, uh, 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 most renowned uh, Christian leader in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in the Middle East. Can anybody name one? No, we can't. Because it's not about that. It's about this. It's about what Jesus did on the cross, setting people free from all of those things that they could not be free from. Free from Satan's influence in our lives, free from sin, and free from death. That's the central core, and it's all summed up in his last seven statements. The last seven statements that Jesus would ever say is more than enough for us to understand those things. I think the kids are ready to come up and lead us in our last worship song. Then I'll come back up and close in prayer.